Uh, you were born and raised in Kentucky, and I don't know, what was your uh, experience like growing up as a Black trans woman in the South? Were you out to your family? Was your family super supportive? Well, when I was growing up in Kentucky, especially in the mid-90s, we didn't have a language to describe trans identity. I just knew that my insides didn't match my outsides, and the way that I felt and expressed myself wasn't in alignment with the societal expectation as to who I was to be as a young little boy in the South, you know? And so um, it wasn't until I was 19 years old and I had left home so that I could try to figure out who I was and what I was about that I actually found language and community surrounding um, or community that embraced my ability to live authentically. And when you first left Kentucky at 19, do you remember what the experience was like being a young LGBT person going to Los Angeles from the South? Um, well, that's the thing. I still, I knew that I was different, but unlike many of my peers, I didn't have the, oh, I think I'm gay moment. I knew mm -hmm. that I wasn't. And so like, if I wasn't gay and I wasn't, what am I? So I don't know that I necessarily consciously went to Los Angeles with the idea that I was, um, you know, uh, again, that I was, I just knew that whatever I was experiencing wasn't safe to explore in Kentucky. Um, mm -hmm. You know, especially since given the current political climate, it's not hard to understand why right. <laughs> someone who falls outside of the, the status quo would not want to feel safe there. It was enough just being born Black in America, to be born Black in Kentucky. Then you add LGBTQ identity. In my instance, being a Black trans woman, you add sexism and, you know, massage noir. And so we really began to be able to unpack intersectionality and the idea that, um, that multiple threats of discrimination exist when someone's identity overlaps with multiple marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to intersectionality, especially in LA, I actually just came back from LA. I lived there for about four and a half years and moved back to Oklahoma. There is definitely um, racism and misogyny within the LGBT community. And I know, um, for example, some like sometimes you just have to call people out. So I want to bring up um, how you stood up to Caitlyn Jenner because it's an important conversation. What was what was that moment like? And do you think that you help people? bring or understand more about like why it is problematic for someone to support the current administration as an LGBT person? Well, I think that's really interesting. So going to that moment um, in time, people love to scream cancel culture, but what they don't realize is that I had actually befriended Caitlyn Jenner um, mm -hmm. when she had first came out and there were other activists and organizers who were like, she's a Republican. And, you know, she, you know, automatically she believes all of these things. And so what my argument to them was, she doesn't know who she is. She's been living as someone else her entire life and as someone who's from Kentucky who had a lot of problematic views and thoughts on a lot of things, not because that was truth to my heart, but because that's how, how I was socialized and what I was taught to believe. So someone knowing that, I extended that same compassion to her. The issue um, 
sprung forth when she still didn't reject her allegiance to the current administration after I had brought her around all of these organizations that were doing amazing work after she had been presented with statistics and data that show how, you know, Black trans women are disproportionately impacted by the rhetoric that she was supporting and funding. And what people don't know is that the day that that confrontation happened, of course, media didn't cover that. It was the Friday that Trump announced the first trans military ban. And she showed up to a trans chorus of Los Angeles fundraiser that night when I and another donor in the community was told that she wouldn't be there and centered herself in the entire program. Mm -hmm. That was the issue. So to answer that question, yes, we um, do see instances of uh, members of the LGBTQ community who aren't willing to interrogate their racism, um, you know, um, sexism, or even in this instance, um, not only transphobia, but homophobia, because she had even went on Ellen and was like, well, you know, same-sex marriage. And so, like, it's just like, ah, like, are you, like, um, it seems like common sense at some point. And, you know, I was looking at the TMZ reports, and it's like, they try to gaslight you almost. Oh, I gather them, though. <laughs> yeah. Mother, gather them, honey. Like, they can never. So, yes. So, they, that, well, to, to your point, Harvey Levin was another one who is, you know, log-having gay Republican Trump supporter. And so, what we realize um, in that, in those interactions is, is that there's an emerging conversation on class solidarity. The idea that even if you are someone who's LGBTQ, even if you are someone who is a person of color, even if you are someone who may have been raised by an immigrant family, depending on what your social and wealth status is in America, people are willing to make concessions at the expense of those who don't have access to those spaces and privileges. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's very apparent, especially in West Hollywood, where it's a lot of rich Caucasian male gays who are just like, um, yeah, I'm good. And they just kind of like fuck everyone else over. That's kind of how I take it, yeah. which is which is crazy. So um, this is just but a tip that, of And it's spiritual. There's a lot of spiritual bypassing. So this basically, there's this culture that's all about peace and love and just understanding and you know, this call for civility, which is ultimately saying, you know, when we call for civility, we're really calling for censorship and silence. We're really saying your truth and your oppression and the um, socioeconomic disparity that you're experiencing is an inconvenience to my own delusion of what it means to be a good person. So could you please just not? <laughs> yes. You beautifully yes. describe my frustration with a lot of people right now, especially in um, this day and age where, you know, being moderate is considered the the, much, the mature thing to do or something like that. Like, I, I, I never understood that at all. Well, not only that, these children don't understand, children, adults, men, women, and others don't understand that you are the descendant of brick throwers. I mm -hmm. think of Marcia P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and the patrons of the Stonewall Inn and Kublai Donuts and Compton's Cafeteria Riots and the Black Cat and all of this, you know, act up and all of these legendary groups, Harvey Milk and 
you are, you know, even um, they were going around and slamming pies and politicians' faces like Anita <laughs> Bryant and all of these things. So how do we get from being these active, you know, people who at all costs, because our survival's on the line, to now we're playing respectability politics to institutions and entities that don't respect us. Mm -hmm. To the point that we didn't get LGBTQ workplace protections as an extension of the 1964 Civil Rights Act until 2020. These are things that we're not looking at. Yeah, exactly. Just were you about to say something, Corny? Oh, no, just totally <laughs> agree. Yes. And like, this is just the tip of the iceberg of your own political engagement. I've actually been following you for a while and I've, you know, seen you on the Elizabeth Warren campaign and also speak on the Young Turks. How did you originally get interested in politics? It wasn't until 2015, um, around 2016, uh, leading up to 2016, because I truly believed that if we just play nice, <laughs> I was actually one of the people that I'm kind of describing, that I was describing a moment ago, where if we just follow the rules, if we play nice, if we're calm, collected, you know, everything will be okay. And when Donald Trump was still elected, despite grabbing women by the body parts, despite, you know, the, the egregious thoughts on, um, on white nationalists and the unwillingness to challenge those messages, all of these various things, um, it made it very clear to me that it was gloves off. And so I didn't have a lot of knowledge and information on how governmental systems work per se. Um, I did start taking an online um, Harvard course on American politics and just kind of started to, you know, try to acclimate uh, myself to, um, you know, some of the topics that constantly come up. But what I realized was that I had an opportunity to create a niche space for people who weren't part of the academic community, for people who didn't have an on-ramp into these conversations around you know, policies and legislation that directly impacted my life, whether I could connect language to it or not. And so I made it my personal mission to be able to understand what the nuances were in these conversations and then take it back to communities that, again, didn't have language, couldn't fall back on academia, and were intentionally being excluded from these conversations, you know, by all these top brow, you know, lists of terminology and all of that, so that they could come to the table. Mm -hmm. No, that's definitely a pet peeve of mine when I see politics being presented in such an esoteric way. And I, I went to Loyola Marymount University, so kind of like in middle of California, and uh, not middle, like Southern California. And I just could not get over the fact, like in the poli side department, it was so exclusive. I'm like, you guys are trying to make a change, but you're not going to invite anyone to the table. Like it does not make sense. So um, when you, there, with this whole dynamic, like, and you see politicians like Mitch McConnell running in your state, do you ever just have the urge to go back to Kentucky and run for office? People have begged me to come back to Kentucky and run for office, especially when I became the first openly trans person to run for California state office. And so when that 
you know, news broke and hit air and headlines, so many people from Kentucky were like, girl, why don't you come back here? Why don't, you know, you run? And the thing is that what I realized is that we even seen that recently with Charles Booker, who was an amazing candidate for Senate, who worked really hard, who actually lived in the community that I'm from, you know, or that I grew up in rather, you know, and was really a champion for the people. And the fact that he got beat out by Amy McGrath, who, you know, while she is a woman, she, her husband is a Republican. And from what I understand, a Trump supporter, she was even a Trump apologist. Um, she went and said that Mitch McConnell was the reason why Trump couldn't do what he wanted to do. And so took the heat off Trump and put it on Mitch McConnell. Wildness. And so there's this cognitive dissonance um, that I recognize in Kentucky and all over the country, not just Kentucky, even California. We claim to be so progressive, but yet, you know, it's still very conservative when it comes to money in politics. Um, liberal and creativity in the arts, mainly because, again, they feed, we feed the capitalist, uh, you know, machine. But I, I personally feel like that politics, there's just something about the buttoned up uh, performative piece of it that feels very disingenuous to me and inauthentic. And it's why I was excited about Elizabeth Warren's candidacy because I not only saw the authenticity in her, but she could show me the car facts. Like she was going to the board and showing her work each and every single time. And she wasn't just talking about systemic injustice, she was actually mapping it out and giving us the formula and the solution to change it. And so between her and Senator Sanders, you know, you saw this different movement of conscious thought that kind of, you know, it was just, it was, we thought that it was gonna go in a different direction. But to answer your question, People always ask me, would I run for office again? Would I possibly? Um, but definitely there would have to be a cultural shift in the political sphere and how we talk about these issues. It, I don't want to play um, respectability and establishment. I would want to be able to enter those spaces mm. completely authentic. And I was going to ask you, what was your... Also, what was your experience like running in office for California? How did, how were voters reacting to you? Um, it was terrible because, not because of the voter, but the truth of the matter is that people, it's unfortunate. I don't know that people always want the truth as much as they want to feel security in their delusion is mainly about security. And that was an uncomfortable, painful truth, especially when it came to, it would also, it also made me public enemy number one in some of the uh, political, you know, uh, people in the um, other politicians, because when you tell those kind of truths that I was telling around uh, recidivism and incarceration and homelessness and sex work and rape culture and the fact that in my district in 8054 we had over 435,000 constituents when in reality we could break that up into several other districts and then allow leadership to spring forth in a way that makes sure that the constituency in those uh, districts are being heard and being seen and so 
there were just so many things that other people weren't willing to tackle or challenge because they were a part of that system. So you quickly begin to see that by one individual speaking truth to power, it, it shines light on all of it, not just some of it, and they'll take you out. And so I, I think it was really sad um, that one of my opponents, who was a Black woman, you know, played into this, like, very terrible, like, these, like, dirty tricks and games and just things that really left me feeling disheartened and distrustful of the process. Yeah. No, I feel like that's when people say, like, you have to sell your soul to be in politics. And, like, hearing experiences like that, I'm like, holy shit, it, it's true. Yeah. Like, so, um, on a more positive note, when the pandemic hit, hit you helped start a nonprofit called Your Essential. Yes. which helps communities in need during COVID. So can you explain what this organization does and what inspired you to help start it? Sure. Where you are essential, um, it was a means of funding grassroots organizations who were on the front line serving communities disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And then quickly, what we began to realize as we delve into what some of these stories look like and what some of their challenges are around housing, secure, uh, housing uh, stability and food insecurity is that these um, disproportionate realities existed pre-pandemic. And so mm -hmm. we then went from being an emergency uh, response funding mechanism to doing that in addition to looking at how we can build up mutual aid networks across the country and how we can also disrupt the nonprofit industrial complex and the ways in which it misappropriates funds to these larger orgs that often are more focused on that high six-figure digit salary of the executive level and not so much making sure the needs are being met of those people who rely on those services. And especially when it comes to uh, Black, queer, and trans folks, or um, even brown folks, we know that not only are we very seldomly represented or reflected in the leadership of these organizations, but the workers on the front lines are only one paycheck away from being in the same predicament as the demographic they serve. And so seeing that and having worked for those organizations and seeing the ways in which wealth is, uh, is consumed and not um, appropriated the way that it should be. I wanted to create a space where we can grant these organizations to do the work and allow them to uh, work in full autonomy in ways that, that make sense for them and that are proven fruitful for them. Mm -hmm. And with all this work, I know that um, it must be pretty stressful. And I know that um, I have a couple of close friends who are, who are in recovery right now and have to be extremely honest with themselves and careful about getting into situations where they might relapse. So how are you able to maintain being sober while working in the stressful environment of media and politics on top of just being black and trans in America? I think for me personally, um, they're watching. <laughs> there becomes a point where you realize th th this idea of a personal life or like a private life is this mythological concept where understanding that whatever I do has the potential to come to light. And 
my entire platform is built on that unadulterated truth and strength that we find in vulnerability. So before I get to that point, I actually talk about what I'm going through. Like I actually, and I think that for me, addiction was a way to kind of, um, you know, push those feelings down and not deal with them and not press them. um, And just kind of, I turned to drugs as a social lubricant to kind of like numb myself to everything that was happening and to feel this false sense of resilience at the time. Um, And so I think for me now, I just found a deeper purpose in my life. And at that chapter, I don't know that I had that sense of purpose. I subscribe to these ideals of being inferior and being unworthy because I was black, because I was trans, because I was fat, because I didn't have a college education, because, 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 you know? And so there came a point when I started speaking my truths and having those truths validated by some of the thousands of people who follow me and follow the work and support. And so I found the community that I was looking for for so long in these, um, you know, in this larger community that was committed to racial justice, um, you know, gender justice, uh, all of these different ideals that America claims to be about. So I don't really have an answer. I, I think that's the miracle of recovery is that I don't have the power to keep myself clean and sober. I just continue to live in service to the universe and then I met with, um, you know, karmic, <laughs> uh, karmic, I guess, gifts of recovery. Like, I don't, I don't, mm. I don't know the formula for it. I just show up and I try to do service to other people. No, that, that's beautiful. And a lot of my friends in recovery say that they have become more deeply spiritual due to the process that they had to go through. So was your recovery process also like that? Yeah. Well, what it was is that I learned to find perfection in my imperfection. That realization that who I was and who I was so ashamed of and the things that I thought made me broken and worthless, to see those things transform and become symbols of beauty and strength and the light at the end of the tunnel for other people who are navigating those places uh, in their own life, that became a very powerful thing. And what I realized is that, you know, you can't shame me about anything that I've assigned strength and value to. Um, And so that's pretty much what, and then, you know, even when people have tried to bring up things from my past and tried to you know, try to like play these like reindeer games and sling mud and dirt. I always have to go back to the fact that, that, that again, there is perfection in that imperfection. The willingness to access vulnerability as a teaching tool, mm-hmm. that's something that has solidified who I am in media today, is that I can hold space for that in a way that's honest, real, raw, authentic, unflinching, and that also gives other people an, an on-ramp into their own healing. I mean, that seems like the key to personal, like personal and emotional freedom right there. Yeah. And it just, and it makes you more authentic consequently. 
And we actually both watched your TED talk where you talked about the welcome committee, the committee. And um, I was wondering if you could just explain that to our viewers and um, how people can like implement the lessons you can learn from the welcome committee in their own lives. Um, well, just to lend some context, I had a thing for a second because I do so many speeches that even with that TED talk, I didn't understand the context. I was like, wait, welcome committee. And I believe you're referring to when I was talking about this, how we all, many of us have these um, intrinsic experiences and feelings around hurt and pain and things that have happened in our life. And when we reach out to other people for support and love and compassion, sometimes we're met with this icy cold indifference or um, apathetic uh, response. And it's mainly because we become a culture that has kind of been like, well, it, it happened to me, so welcome to my world. And I think that that's kind of essentially shorthand what I was talking about, I believe, in that context was that mm -hmm. there's this idea that, again, like, we have a hard time finding compassion for other people because we, we felt like no one was there for us. Um, and almost like this idea of paying your dues, like, even, like, in entertainment, we see the, the abusive, egregious things that have happened and then the ways in which people stood by and allowed it to happen because they've accepted that this is the culture and it's just, you know, what it is. Mm -hmm. No, I think I also kind of do that too with the welcome committee. I think it's a bad habit of mine where I'm like, oh, let me give you a logical reason. It's going to be okay. But it's like, that's not what people are here for. Yeah. Well, when trans women talk about certain abuses or like when I was talking about rape and when I was talking about being, you know, hypersexualized and being denied certain opportunities and then having cisgender, uh, which means this, the gender you were assigned at birth is in alignment with the gender you identify as. Having cisgender women tell me, well, welcome to womanhood. You wanted to be a woman. Well, this is it. And it's like, first of all, <laughs> I didn't choose to become anything. Like, I am who I am. Secondly, you should want better for yourself. Like, so if your response to someone in pain who's suffering, who's hurting is welcome, then that means you don't expect more for yourself. And that speaks to a deeper, you know, again, this indoctrination into how we're accepting the culture of abuse as a norm and that unwillingness to disrupt it. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And when it comes to like the lack of empathy, I think that also kind of ties into, uh, this is from the same speech, but the concept of diet woke. You, you've used this term to describe um, allies who invite you to like speaking events and other spaces to speak about your experience as a black trans woman. Meanwhile, there is no concrete action done on their end to help you and other black trans women. So um, what kind of, in what context does this usually happen? And um, how can we, I mean, in general, how can we as a society kind of stop this diet woke? Um, I think ultimately, I just actually talked about this in Harper's Bazaar um, in the September issue. It, it just, um, a, it's entitled uh, The Anatomy of Trans Massage Noir, if anybody wants to check it out. And 
I dissect the ways in which um, this kind of like not understanding that sometimes people are consuming trauma porn and conflating it with advocacy or allyship. Um, not understanding that until you're willing to disrupt the privileges or to, to dismantle these systems in a way that becomes inconvenient, even for you, that, that that's when it becomes real. Because if your allyship isn't inconvenient, um, then it's incongruent with uh, true racial justice. And so I think that, again, it's asking communities who are disproportionately impacted by, you know, these systems, what it is that they need. Um, I think it's also not tokenizing us, not telling us, you know, what our story is, but allowing us to um, to speak our truth in our own words and in a way that, um, just in a way that feels um, authentic. Like it just gets exhausting even. I think the things that people want for themselves want that for somebody else. It's simple. Like, it's one of those things that, yes, I have the ability to intellectualize it, but I think ultimately we know what the answer is. We know that true, you know, economic, social, gender, racial justice has to do with wanting for Black folks, trans folks, queer folks, what you want for yourself. So if you want housing, if you want employment, if you want healthcare, if you want access to higher learning and opportunities, if you want family, if you want community, if you want safety, if you want dignity and respect, want that for us. Mm -hmm. That's just what, and it's so amazing how, like, again, um, there's this, um, I was reading this um, article that was talking about the epistemology of ignorance, and it's this willingness to bypass what we know about racial justice so that we can, because, you know, sometimes, especially with white Americans, when we talk about privilege and the egregious past of slavery, there's this fear that by acknowledging these atrocities, a mirror will be held up to themselves and they'll see themselves for the first time in the roles that they played in their complicity in a way that they can't look away from. <laughs> and so going back, we're talking about West Hollywood, like that kind of, it's all of it. It's just this, um, again, understanding that we have to be able to invest in liberation. It requires mm -hmm. an investment. Um, and we see that there are more people who are committed to it. And we also see that there are more people who are leaning on the status quo, which is sad because everybody talks about what they would have done back during slavery or how they would have responded or how they, well, in 2020, you have your chance. What are you willing to do when Black men and women and trans folks are being gunned down by law enforcement? What are you willing to do now that ICE is placing children in cages and separating families and, you know, uh, causing deaths and all of these things. What are you willing to do that uh, reproductive rights are still being threatened? What are you willing to do that people are being raped and being sworn into the high courts? Like, what are you willing to do? Yeah, exactly. And especially like this year in the wake of George Floyd, I feel like white Americans have thought that specifically that if they put a black square on their profile, then they're good. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it is, 
that's always interesting to me because I feel like it's just such an allusion to what activism is. It's like, no, it's not, it's not that. Even when it comes to posting on Instagram stories, that's important. But if you're not aligning the actions with what you're posting, it's like, there's a little disconnect there. And I want to ask you as a member of the media, I know that like, um, four of you who don't know, Ashley was the first trans woman to be the editor-in-chief of a publication. And I feel like as members of the media, we're tasked with being objective. But in the face of everything that's going on, it's like, call you, you kind of have to call it out to call them out. You know what I mean? That's why I personally stepped away from a lot of that. Um, one of the main reasons why is because media has been a strong... A uh, key proponent of of most of the I don't know if I'm allowed to say but <laughs> most of the uh, the 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 oppression and the and the propaganda everything surrounding it media has been complicit all the way from slavery up until now um, and so one example of that is I remember specifically when one week Drake. Neo, Common, uh, LeBron James, John Legend, uh, Devin Hines of uh, 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 Devin Hines, all of these like brilliant uh, black men and creators had done or said something in solidarity to black trans women, and I was so shocked and so excited, and especially since like societally we want to um, you know act as if black people are more inherently transphobic and homophobic than anyone else. And so I went to several, um, you know, publications, wanting to publications I was even a contributing editor with, and I asked them if I could do a piece on that. No one would let me run that piece. But let R. Kelly get in Gail King's face, let Kanye's mental health act up, let Dave Chappelle say some problematic, you know, statements on trans identity, and they're beating down my inbox wanting me to cover it. And so because of that, I recognize that another uh, pillar of uh, white supremacy and racism is media. Media controls what we deem to be truth. Media controls where our uh, perspective lies and what information we get and what we don't. Social media and algorithms and all of that also help control and manipulate our view of the entire world. So media, social media, and traditional media have played a part in sustaining and exacerbating systems of racism.